So if you have your Bible, please turn to 1 Chronicles 13. Bringing back the ark, David conferred with each of his officers, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. He then said to the whole assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our people throughout the territories of Israel, and also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their towns and pastorlands to come and join us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. The whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. So David assembled all Israel from the Shehor River in Egypt to Lebo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kareth Jerim. David and all Israel went to Balab Judah to bring up from there the ark of the God the Lord, who is enthroned between the cherubim, the ark that is called by the name. They moved the ark of God from Abinadab's house on a new cart, with Uzzah and Ahio guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God, with songs and with harps, lyres, timbrels, cymbals, and trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark, because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down, because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. Then David was angry, because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of God that day and asked, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? He did not take the ark to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months, and the Lord blessed his household and everything he had. The year is 1936, and the intrepid archaeologist, Indiana Jones, sets out in search of the fabled lost Ark of the Covenant over the course of a hair-raising adventure. Indy races rivals to the Ark, enduring explosions, spiders, snakes, booby traps, and bad guys in his quest to save the holy relic. I mean, who could forget that rolling boulder scene? If you've seen the movie, you'll remember that moment well. Just to clarify, the Ark of the Covenant has never been found, okay? It has never been found. Just a little bit like Rocky Balboa is not a real boxer. And the Ark of the Covenant, I always thought he was, and the Ark of the Covenant has never really been found. Now, when I think of the Ark of, of the Covenant in the Old Testament, I always remember um, that movie and how it was this pursuit of, of the holy relic, the Ark of the Lord. But I wonder, do we really understand what the Ark of the Covenant is? The Ark of God's presence? Do we really understand or know um, a whole lot about that? Actually, in the movie, you can see on the screen there that picture, that's not a bad visual representation, I think, of what the ark actually may well have looked like in the day of David and the people of Israel. But some introductory comments um, on the ark of the Lord. The word ark just means box or chest. 
the chest of, of the covenant, the, the box of the covenant. And the ark of God or the, the ark of the covenant was this rectangular chest made of acacia wood um, and it was gold plated all over it. On its top, um, the ark was capped with two outstretched winged cherubim, um, angelic beings that were facing one another on the lid of the ark. And underneath the cherubim on the top of the ark, what was, um, there was what was called a mercy seat. Um, now, we don't have time to go into all of the details of that, but the design of the ark is stunning. It's beautiful. There is so much symbolic significance in the Ark of the Covenant. Um, time doesn't allow us to say a whole lot more about it, but by the time Israel had reached the Promised Land, the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of the Presence of God, contained within it three items, three really significant, important items. So inside the Ark, there was the Ten Commandments, written on two tablets of stone, given to Moses, God's law, God's precepts, if you like. God's commands for how his people were to live their lives. Ten commandments were inside the ark. Aaron's rod was inside the ark. Aaron's rod, which miraculously budded and when it was in Aaron's hand, confirming back in the day of Moses, Aaron's priestly anointing among God's people, Aaron's leadership among the people of God, this priestly anointing um, that he carried. And then there was a bowl of manna inside the Ark of the Covenant, that miraculous food that fell from heaven and fed the people of God in the Old Testament whenever they were wandering in the wilderness, a, a symbolic of the, the provision of God that God provides. Most importantly, the Ark of the Covenant symbolized God's presence, the presence of the Lord with his people. Look at verse 6 in 1 Chronicles 13. It says this, David and all of Israel went to Bala of Judah, Kiriath Jerim, to bring up from there the Ark of the Lord, who is enthroned between the cherubim, the Ark that is called by the name. Similarly, back in Psalm 99, verse 1, we read this. The psalmist writes, The Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord reigns, he sits enthroned between the cherubim. That little phrase is actually repeated throughout the Old Testament that the Lord sits enthroned between the cherubim. And it's this really significant reminder that the presence of God rested in some special manifest way in the ark and with the ark of the covenant, the ark of the presence of God that went with his people. The ark was considered to be the earthly footstool of God's heavenly throne. I, I love that imagery, the earthly footstool of the Lord's heavenly throne. That notion that, that God's feet touched the earth where the ark of God was present. Just beautiful imagery. And it was the ark of God that traveled with God's people. Not only was the ark associated with, with God's presence, the ark of God was also symbolic of God's protection over his people. 
Whenever God's people went into battle, the ark of the, the covenant, the ark of God's presence went with them. Wherever the ark went, we read that God's enemies scattered. Can you picture that in your, in your mind's eye? Wherever the ark went, the ark of the presence of God as it was carried into battle, the enemies of God scattered. They must have known what they were dealing with. Yahweh, Almighty God, the Lord is with these people. His presence went with them. His protection went before them. And so what we see in the Old Testament is this kind of intended rhythm and movement of God's people that was aligned to the ark of God's presence and protection. Listen to Numbers chapter 10, 35 to 36. The author writes this, whenever the ark set out, Moses said to the people, or said to the Lord, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And then whenever the ark rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. You see, there was this kind of intended rhythm and movement and motion of God's people, that wherever the ark went, the people went. Wherever the presence of the Lord led them, they went, they followed. He went before his people. And the ark's design was such that it would go with the people. The ark of the Lord went out before the people of God to find them places of safety and rescue and refuge. They moved when the ark moved. That was the intention. They moved when the ark moved and they rested whenever the ark of the covenant, the ark of God's presence rested. Isn't that a beautiful picture of how anyone who follows the Lord ought to live their life? That it's the Lord's presence and his protection that goes out before us as his people. There's a really strong reminder for us this morning. It's not the other way around. I think sometimes we get it all wrong. We go about another week, we go about another day. We go out into our day and we get on with whatever it might be that's facing us that day or that week. And then we're reminded, oh goodness, I better pray about that. I better invite the Lord into this moment. I better pray about what's just happening or what's just happened to me. And we get it the wrong way around. See, the picture that we get with the Old Testament people of God, with the Ark of the Presence or the Ark of the Covenant, is that the presence of God went before them. Not only did his presence go out before them and they were to follow God's lead, but his protection went with them and rested with them and the enemies, enemies of God scattered when the Ark of the Presence went before the people of God. As we go into another week, let's be reminded that the Lord goes before us. Don't go into another week in your own strength, in your own resource, trying to go about all that lies in front of you in your own strength, and then on the back end of the week, maybe inviting the Lord to answer some of your prayers that the week's already been. The Lord goes before us. And who is it that fights for us? It's one of the wonderful things about the Christian life is that we have a God who fights for us. The battle belongs to the, to the Lord. The battle does not belong to Stuart or to Matthew or to Esther or to any of us. The battle belongs to the Lord. 
I think we need reminded of that. Lord, the battle is yours. The battles that I face this week, they're not mine to fight. I need you to fight for me. The rhythm of people, of, of those who follow the Lord, the rhythm and the cadence of our life, the movement of our lives is to put the Lord before us, his presence and his protection, and we follow his lead. A rhythm of presence and protection. There are three moments, I think, in, in 1 Chronicles 13 um, that I see that I want us to journey through for a few moments. And the three, the three big moments that we see are this. Number one, the ark is returned. We see that in the first six verses, this intention of bringing the ark back among the people of God. The ark is returned. Worship is the response of God's people. And then holiness is realized. The ark is returned. Worship is the response, and then holiness is realized. I thought it would be really helpful today, and you might find this helpful. Um, I've summarized the message in one sentence. All right, here's the one sentence summary. This is the teacher in me. Learning outcomes or whatever it was called, I can't remember. Message in one sentence. That is God's people to be recentered when God's presence will result in a worshiping awareness of the holiness of God. That, 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 that's a summary of what we see in this passage. To be recentered in God's presence will result in a worshiping awareness of the holiness of God. That's what we're about to see in this moment. So the ark is returned. King David says, let us bring back the ark of God to us. Why? For we did not inquire of it during the days, during the reign of Saul. Remember that? Saul neglected the ark. He did not inquire of the presence of God. And when David becomes king over God's people, he says, let's bring it back. It's the first movement of David's heart. Let's bring back the presence of God. Let's bring back the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing God's holy presence. And the whole assembly agreed to it. Well done, people of Israel. They say, good idea, David. We are with you. We need the presence and the protection of God at the center of who we are. We need to orbit our lives around our God. This is David's priority. It's his first move as king to return the Ark of God's presence We've said it before, but what was Saul thinking of? What was King Saul thinking of? Why did he not see the significance of the Ark of the Presence, the Ark of the Covenant? Saul, what on earth was going on in your thick skull? What was going on, Saul? Because the Ark contained the Ten Commandments of God, God's holy precepts, God's Word. God's law, God's commands for how his people were to live. The ark contained Aaron's rod, reminding the people of that, that, that anointing, that priestly anointing upon, upon the people of God, particularly upon the Levites, who would mediate between God's people and the presence of God, and most significantly, God's presence. God's presence, that bowl of manna, which symbolized the, the provision of God. How could Saul be so neglect, neglectful of all of that? How could Saul just, just push it to one side? And so David brings the Ark of the Covenant back into the center of God's people. This is a centering moment. 
I wonder if you ever had moments in your life where you know you need to recenter yourself back, back into the presence of God. You need to realign your life all over again. You know that you've got out of sync with the Lord. You know that you've left, you've let your heart wander from Him. You know that you've got out of fellowship with the Lord somehow. Good old Northern Irish term, backsliding. Slide away, kind of slip away from God and it might, it might happen over a long time. It might happen over, over a, a period of months or even years and before you know it, you feel just so distant and disconnected from God. This moment for the people of God in 1 Chronicles 13 is a recentering. They're coming back again. They're coming back again to the heart of God, back to the heart of, of worship. It's a recentering moment for God's people. And if you're here this morning, and maybe that resonates with your heart, you know that you need to recenter your life again, you need to reconfigure things. You need to come back to the Lord. You need to come back into that place where, where he is at the center and everything else is orbiting and, and revolving around his presence at the center of your life. Your family is struggling and you know you need to put the rock of ages back in the middle. Things are tough and you know that you're not going to make it through unless the Lord is at the center of it all because you're fed up fighting in your own strength. This is a recentering moment for the people of God. And we often, if I'm going to be re really honest, I believe that daily we need to recenter our lives. We need to recenter our lives. The ark points us forward to Jesus. You see, in the ark of the covenant, the Ten Commandments point us forward to Jesus as the eternal word of God. The one who who perfectly kept God's word and his righteousness becomes ours. How we need reminded of that. Aaron's rod points us forward to this, this anointing upon the life of Jesus who is our great high priest. Appointed and anointed by God to be our intercessor, the one who intercedes before the Father on our behalf. We need to be recentered on that. We need to be reminded of that. What about the manna? points us forward to this reminder that Jesus is the bread of life. He's the one we feed off. He's the one who feeds our hungry souls. Only he will satisfy. Agreed? Only he will satisfy. And so every day ought to be a, a, a moment of recentering ourselves on the presence of God. The presence of God. I don't know whether you use the Lectio devotional um, but there's a lovely little opening line every day. And whether you use it or not, this is a brilliant prayer to recenter your heart. It just says, as I enter prayer now, I pause to be still, to breathe slowly. I think we all need to do that as another day begins. To breathe slowly and to recenter my scattered senses upon the presence of God. Does anyone ever feel like you've got scattered senses? Your mind all over the place. Senses everywhere. What's this day going to bring? We recenter our scattered senses upon the presence of God. 
See, the ark is being returned. A recentering of God's people is beginning. And as the ark is being returned, what do the people do? They worship God. Worship is the response. As they move the ark from, I can't say that word, Abinadab's house. You did much better, Matthew. As they move the ark from Abinadab's house, what what did David and all the people of Israel do? They celebrate before the Lord with all of their might. It's not half-hearted. Can you picture it? They celebrate with all of their might. This was a, a momentous moment in the life of God's people. God's throne representing his holy presence is being returned its rightful place among the people of God. The whole nation joins in. They join in in this celebration. Can you picture it? The whole nation joins in. They vibrantly worship the Lord with music, with songs of worship, with acoustic guitars, bass guitars, drums, and a Nord keyboard. That's just to make sure you're awake. It's not with that. With harps and lyres and cymbals, timbrels, I don't know what a timbrel is, and trumpets, they celebrate and they worship the Lord. You see, when a recentering begins to happen in anyone's life, and I can promise you this, when you recenter your life again on the presence of God, whenever any person realizes the proper place of God's presence, then that person will be moved to worship. Carmoney Church, we are to be many things. We want to be a pastorally caring community of God's people, caring for one another with deep love. We want to do that as well as we can. You young people in church today, another wee word for you, I always love it when you're here and you're among us. We want to run the best youth and children's ministries and programs that we possibly can for you. You hear me? We want to look after you. We want to have the best youth and children's programs that are on offer. We're striving for that. We want to have the best community and compassion initiatives that help us to reach as many people in this community as we can possibly reach. We want to make the deepest local imprint and have the greatest global impact that we can make for the kingdom of God. We want to be all of that and more, but at the heart of it all, At the very heart of it all, we must strive to nurture and grow our passionate heart of worship. Our passionate heart of worship. If you're new to our church family and you're here for the first time or you're new around the place, we want you to know that. You need to know that. That at the heart of it all, we're a worshiping community of God's people. We want to put the Lord at the center and we want to worship him When we gather and again when we scatter out through those doors, we go and we live lives of worship where the presence of God is at the center of it all. Worship, our passionate heart of worship. Worship can be described in many ways. This is just one definition. So don't come up to me after and say, that's not what worship is. This is one definition of what worship is and can be. One author puts it like this, worship is becoming aware of God's presence and responding to his presence with verbal or active expressions of our love and our devotion to him. How's your heart of worship? Personally, 
as an individual follower of Jesus, how is your heart of worship? Within your family, how does that heart of worship express itself? If you're a parent, grandparent, do you love and care for, for your children and grandchildren? How does, that, how does that heart of worship express itself at home? How is that, that heart of worship expressed within the ministry that you, that you serve in, within the life of our church that you lead in? How is that heart of worship expressing itself? You see, we see the people of God worship as the ark is brought back into the center of their life. And then for David and the people, it all goes terribly wrong. In fact, things actually weren't being done right by David and the people. It's very easy to overlook this. But David, I think, was getting ahead of himself in this moment. I think, I think King David was just so caught up and carried away with this moment of, of recentering, and there's nothing wrong with that. I love, I love the heart of David. Does anybody else love the heart of David? A heart that is after the heart of God. I love the heart of David. But in this moment of, of exuberant worship, as the ark is being brought back, this moment is actually marred by significant oversights and disobedience on the part of David and the people, all of which leads to this terrible moment at the end of chapter 13 as God's holiness is realized, but it revolves around an individual called Uzzah. Holiness is realized. We could easily, I could really easily skip past what happens in this moment, but I, I don't want to because I think it's vitally, vitally important See, what we see is that a brand new cart was, was built by, by David and the people. A brand new cart to be pulled by oxen um, to carry the ark of God on top of this cart. And there were to be two men. Uzzah was one of them and Ahio was the other. And they were to guide the cart with the ark of the covenant on top of it, the ark of God's presence. And the celebration is in full flow. If you can picture this. The people of God are worshipping. The ark of the Lord is on this cart being pulled by two oxen. Uzzah and Ahio are beside it and the people are worshipping with music. And they're singing songs. It's in full flow. And then disaster strikes. Now I'm pretty good. I've got good reflexes. I think I've got good reflexes. I'm that person who when a cup falls out of the cupboard, I catch it before it hits the floor. Um, I'm pretty good at that. Or whenever I drop my phone, I catch it on my foot. Is that just a me thing? Anyone else do that? When my phone drops, I catch it on my foot and it doesn't smash. Um, I've got pretty good reflexes. I kind of think that anyway. But in this moment, the ox stumbles. Picture it. The cart topples. And this, the sacred ark of the covenant, the presence of God, begins to slide towards the edge of the cart where it's about to fall off into the dirt and the mud, where it, where it would surely be defiled. And I very, very likely would have done what Uzzah does in this moment. Would you have done it? Let's be honest. No doubt instinctively and out of respect. For the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Presence of God, Uzzah stretches out his hand and he, he catches it from falling. 
before it falls into the dirt. And the Bible says that the heavens open and a voice says, Thank you, Uzzah. You have saved the day. No, that doesn't happen. By that doesn't happen. You were meant to shake your head and say that's wrong. I honestly, I know there's a lot in this. I'm just trying to keep you all awake. <laughs> honestly, that does not happen. A voice from heaven doesn't say, thank you, Uzzah. You saved the day. You stopped the ark from toppling off into the dirt on the side of that road heading to Jerusalem. It's not what happens. As soon as, as, soon as Uzzah reaches out and touches the ark, the Bible says he is instantly struck down because he put his hand on the ark. And he dies there before the Lord. I don't like this moment, God. I don't like what happens, Uzzah, Lord. I'll be really honest, I struggle, Lord, with moments like this that can, I know you're not like this, God, but that can make you seem to an outside world who don't understand your character, can make you appear to be a capricious, angry, tribal deity who wipes out people with no apparent warning or reason. I know you're not like that, God, but I struggle with moments like this. Moments that seem totally incompatible with the New Testament image of the love and mercy and grace of God revealed to us in and through the person and work of Jesus, your son. Don't really like moments like this, Lord. It's hard to see this happen to poor Uzzah, who it seems like was trying to do something good. But then we recall Numbers chapter 4. If you're making notes, Numbers chapter 4, where it describes how the ark of the Lord was to be transported, the only way it was to be transported, it was to be transported by the Kohathites. They were a clan from the tribe of Levi. They were to put long wooden poles through rings on the side of the ark of God, and they were to carry the ark on poles, not on a brand new cart, on poles, on foot, because the ark of the covenant, the ark of the presence of God was never to be touched by human hands. So holy was the ark of the covenant, the ark of God's presence. Numbers 4 verse 15 tells us that the Kohathites are to do the carrying and they must not touch the holy things or God's word says, they will die. They will die. It's God's word. It's God's command. God cannot break his word. He can't. His word is truth. His word is perfect. His word is binding. Oza, poor Oza, touches the ark of God's presence and he dies. Now David is both angry. I mean, I can only picture this moment of celebration stops. The music stops. The procession stops. David is both angry 
it says in the Bible, I'm afraid of God. Two very, very appropriate responses in a moment like this. Can't get his human mind around what's just happened. He's, he's angry, he's afraid of God, and he abandons the project. Project, return of the ark, off. The project, finished for now. David can't see, he can't understand how, Lord, how am I going to get the ark back to Jerusalem? How is it going to happen? And so we read that he takes it to a house of a man called Obed-Edom, where the ark would remain for three months, and Obed-Edom and his entire household would be, would be blessed, would be really blessed by the presence of just the ark of the presence of the Lord. They would be blessed. And then David would come back, we'll come back again, and we'll come back to the second part of the project as we journey through this series. But as we draw this all day close, as we draw this all day close, Jonathan Edwards, many, many years ago, once preached on this passage, and he suggests that us's sin here is actually, is actually the sin of arrogance. And I thought, Lord, that sounds really, really strange. That baffled me when I first read that and thought about that. It doesn't look like arrogance to me. Us, it doesn't, it doesn't strike me as being an arrogant man. He's just doing, Lord, what I think I would have done. I would have tried to catch that art myself. I don't think it's arrogance. But then he suggests that his arrogance is actually seen in his assumption that the ark making contact with the mud on the ground would be a greater sacrilege than the ark making contact with the, with the hand of a sinful human being like Uzzah. Did you get that? The ark making contact with the mud would be a greater sacrilege than the ark making contact with the hand of a sinful human being like Uzzah. And yet we know that contact with the hand of a sinful human being was worse, far worse, than contact with some sinless mud on the ground. You see, the essence of God's presence is holiness. The essence of God's presence is holiness. And when we worship the Lord, we do so, Psalm 29, verse 2, in the splendor of his holiness. In this moment in 1 Chronicles 13, the holiness of God is realized among the people of God. Why don't you stand with me? Stand with me and just, let's just bow in the presence of God. We're going to sing in a moment. We're going to sing in a moment, but what we're going to do in the next two or three minutes is really, really, really important, okay? We're going to respond in our hearts to the Lord. So just where you're standing, let's come before God. Let me remind you of the message in one sentence. To be recentered in God's presence results in a worshiping awareness of the holiness of God. To be recentered in God's presence, we're being taught today from 1 Chronicles 13, will result in a worshiping awareness of the holiness of God.
you're like me, we're reminded in moments like this that the gap between our sinfulness of human beings, we're worse than we ever realize. And God's holiness, always greater than we can ever comprehend. The holiness of God is always greater than you will ever in your earthly mind be able to ever comprehend. But that gap, that gap is bridged and reconciled and covered Covered by the cross of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus. Holiness of God. He's holier than you will ever understand. Your sinfulness, yeah, you're worse. I'm worse than I ever, ever thought. But all of that, that gap is bridged. Praise God. Bridged by the cross of Jesus. Our great high priest our intermediary, the one who has given his life for us, that we might live in the holy presence of God. The cross of Jesus has spoken mercy over you. The cross of Jesus tells you that you are more loved than you could ever dare imagine. Yes, God is holier. Yes, you're more sinful. But you are more loved than you will ever ever, ever understand. That's why we worship. Church family, isn't it? That's why we worship. That's how we worship. That's why in this moment we stand in the holy presence of God. We worship him with songs of praise, with joy in our hearts, with thankfulness and gratitude. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for who you are. Thank you, Spirit of God, that you're among us, communicating all of this, all of this into our hearts. You're communicating all of this. You're making this word come alive in the hearts of God's people. So Lord God, we bow in your presence. In this moment, we once again acknowledge and confess our own human sinfulness. We are worse than we'll ever know. We acknowledge your holiness. You are holy, holy, holy. Holier than we could ever comprehend. But we thank you, Jesus, for your righteousness granted to us in our salvation, granted to us right now in this moment. And so we can worship the Lord in the splendor of your holiness. That's what we do right now, Lord God Almighty. Set us free. Liberate our hearts to worship you in this place. Thank you that whom the Son sets free will be free indeed. Thank you, God, that this place is a place of your presence. Holy Spirit, come. And as we respond in one of the only ways we know how to do best, in songs and, and singing, with instruments, with music, may we do so with, with all of our hearts, with a deep gratitude for that deep work of the Holy Spirit in each of our hearts. Come. Come, Lord, we worship you in the splendor of your holiness. We pray all this in Jesus' name.